Our sermon today is taken from John 20, 24 through 31. This is the word of God. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his, disciple, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the door was locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out with your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Friends, let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. That though so often, Lord God, we have seasons of life where we have doubt, where we openly question who you are, we openly question the promises that you've given to us, we openly question your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that you've sent for us, Lord God. You continue to pursue us, you counsel us, you listen to us, you call us by name, and Lord God, you have told us that you still desire us, and that you desire our unconditional faith unto you. So Father, help us now as we enter into your word, help us now as we apply these things into our lives, help us learn this text well, Lord God so that our minds and our hearts might be renewed by your gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're nearing the end of John's gospel. We are now in the resurrection account, where after Jesus Christ had resurrected, he appeared to specific disciples, specific people. We, we saw in two weeks ago that he appeared to Mary Magdalene and called her by name, a, a grieving woman. We saw last week that he showed up to 10 of his disciples behind locked doors as they were fearful, fearful for their lives, afraid of the Jews that might kill them. And now in this week, we see him appearing to Thomas, one of the 12, one of the disciples that weren't there last week when he showed up to the 10 other disciples. And we're going to see here in this passage an anatomy of faith, a, a, an account here that tells us what exactly faith is. So there's four points from today's text. First, faith has doubts. Faith often wrestles with doubts. Second, faith has a wise counselor. Faith requires a wise counselor, and we have that precisely in the person of Christ. It's not only our savior, but also our counselor. Third, faith has to be without conditions. Faith is unconditional. God demands of us an unconditional kind of faith. And finally, faith is on a person. Of course, the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go through them. First, faith has doubts. Faith has doubts. Now, where do I get this? Look at verse 24 and 25 again here. I'm reading from the ESV. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So here's a setting of this passage. Here's the, here's the setting for, 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 for what we're about to discuss here, right? So Thomas wasn't there last week. Jesus showed up, remember, when the disciples were fearful for their lives, they locked the door because they thought that the Jews might come after them after Jesus was crucified, and now they're still fearful and doubtful, and Jesus shows up. 
Jesus shows up somehow through those locked doors and calls them to have peace. See the marks of, of, of the resurrection. See the marks of the crucifixion on my body. I have been risen from the dead. Have peace now. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. We don't know where exactly he was. And then a week later now, we see in this passage, um, Thomas, um, um, after hearing from these disciples that Jesus had appeared to them, told the disciples here that unless I see the marks of, of, of the resurrection myself, unless I see the scars for myself, unless I touch them and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so Thomas's response here shows a kind of bitterness, a kind of doubt, but notice what happens in verse 24 to 25. Even as Thomas is confessing these doubts, even as Thomas is venting towards these other disciples, even as Thomas is clearly disbelieving his friends, right? His friends tell him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas goes, I'm not, I don't trust you all. I don't believe any of this. Unless I see for myself, unless I touch it with my own hands, right? I will never believe. So he's clearly doubting. He's clearly, you know, embarrassed of his friends maybe even. He's challenging his friends. He's openly venting out to them. But notice something about this text. It continually identifies Thomas as one of the disciples. It continually calls him as one of the twelve. And when the other disciples are talking to him, the text refers to them as the other disciples, assuming still that Thomas is a real disciple of Christ, chosen by God himself. And of course, Thomas had what Calvin called a seed of faith still within him, which means what? Real and true believers can sometimes have moments and seasons of drought and doubt. Real believers can have, real believers, in other words, who have true faith, who really do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who really do want to follow him, can have seasons and moments in their lives where they will feel moments of unbelief, where they will feel that God isn't really there, where they will vent out to the Lord, where they will vent out to their friends and say, I don't know where God is in any of this. I don't believe any of you. I don't, in other words, I don't believe the eyewitness accounts. In other words, I don't believe in the gospels. I don't believe in what people are telling me. People are telling me that God has shown up to them, that Christ has risen, that I should have hope. I don't believe any of that. So true, real believers can have real seasons of doubt, which means what? Don't believe any account of faith that tells you that a real and true believer should never question. Don't believe any account of faith that tells you that a real and true believer should have never moments of any kind of doubt never seasons of, of, of feeling of spiritual dryness, but rather a true believer can undergo these real moments of serious questioning, serious pondering, serious wrestling out with God. And notice another thing of what the disciples, is noted here in 24, 25. Um, the Gospel of John doesn't record whether or not the disciples responded to Thomas. It's almost as if the disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord, believe us, and then Thomas vents his doubts, his anger, his bitterness, his questioning to them. And the disciples just listened. The disciples just listened. They sat there. Somehow there's a kind of new security in there, in, in them now, that allows them to listen to a doubter like Thomas and says to him, hey, we're just with you. We're going to sit with you through this. We're not going to condemn you. We're not going to shun you out. We're not going to question the legitimacy of your faith. We're not going to tell you a true believer doesn't say anything like that. 
apply Job's friends to Job in the book of Job, but rather simply are willing and able to sit with them through eight days, right? Look at verse 26, eight days, through the questioning and the doubting of their friend, and to simply sit with him, and to not question him, and to let him question God, and to, to let him vent. So, so a mark of a true believer, friends, it's not that you'll never experience doubt, but rather you're voicing and venting out these doubts to a, fr- a group of friends. You need a community of people around you where when you have these doubts, you can transparently, openly, tell this community, look, I don't know if the resurrection is true. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm facing real doubts and questions. In other words, you need a community where you can openly and transparently say to them without fearing judgment or condemnation and say, friends, I need help. And I feel this bitterness and doubt within me. Listen to me. And I hope we see this church and we see churches as an, an, a safe place, an avenue for doubters, right? Oftentimes, the church becomes a very not safe place for doubters. We're often feeling that when you come on Sunday, we have to come with our Sunday best. We come to community groups that are right answers and wrong answers, and we just have to reproduce them. We just have to put on a mask, be our best self, put our best feet forward at the same time, and we're never feeling that sense of vulnerability that we have to and we can. We're allowed to vent to our friends, tell them, this is what I'm struggling with. And the church has been awful at this, right? Oftentimes when I hear doubt, two strategies often come up from the church, right? The first strategy, someone confesses to us their doubts, we shame them immediately. How dare you question the church like that? Some of us might be even be tempted. Well, well, our pastor is always right. Don't you dare question him. Are you even a true believer? We're just questioning the doubter all the time. We just shame him all the time. Like, this is not a proper thing for you to do as a true believer. Or something else that is more insidious, something more malicious even. The second strategy that the church does is then when they face these kind of doubts, these intellectual questions, right? Thomas's doubt is an intellectual one. How do I know the resurrection is real? Yes, he's an ancient person. He's someone from the first century. But he's a doubter just like any of us, right? Dead people don't normally rise up to life. Resurrections are not commonplace. Often we hear, oftentimes, right? You know, back then people were more gullible. Modern people are more scientific, more intelligent. Surely they, were, they, were, they just believed out of blind faith. But no, Thomas's doubt is a real intellectual one. Give me some evidence. How do I know that this is really true? How can I believe these eyewitness accounts? And often, the church, the second strategy, a bad strategy, responds to these doubters and not only shames them, but tells them, tells us, hey, look, faith is actually inherently irrational. Faith is not about your intellect. Faith is not about reasoning at all. Faith is completely devoid of all of that. Faith is blind. Faith is really just about action and feeling and commitment without intelligence. And so we tell them, See, if you are asking questions and you, you desire intellectual answers, you're not having real and true faith. And true faith simply commits without questioning. True faith simply feels God. Stop using your mind, just go with your heart. Just go with your heart. 
And often churches that, that do this, and often when we do this, we get insecure about this because we don't know what to say to these doubters, and so we say, it's just about the feelings. So how do we get people to commit if we can't give them answers? How do we get people to commit? Well, just get them to commit to the next thing. Hey, I know these are serious questions, but we got a retreat coming up. Help us out. Keep committing yourself. I know you've got these questions, but just focus on playing the piano because we need you every week. I know you've got all these questions, but hey, look at all these people that you've got to minister to. Think about them. Think about their well-being. Don't voice these questions out loud. So the church ends up becoming a kind of an abusive relationship with its members and tells them, we have nothing to offer you, so how do you get to commit? Just get you into more activities, more commitments, more duties, and that would keep the members in the church. You see, that's pretty insidious, friends, because that's completely counterintuitive. It's not how any relationship works. Every relationship has doubts, right? Not just your relationship with your God and religion, but every relationship has doubts. Why do any romantic relationship break down or friendship? Why? Right? One of the main reasons why relationships break down is because even though they might be going through the motions and doing all the activities, they're still going out on dates, they're still hanging out in church every Sunday, they're still meeting with one another often, one of the reasons, one of the main causes of our relationships break down is that they don't talk to one another. There's no communication that happens. Any relationship thrives on good and clear communication. Every relationship, in other words, needs those moments where the two people involved are asking one another deep and serious questions. Where is this going? Where's our relationship going? You know, I don't understand why you got angry at me last week. Tell me why. Give me some answers. Are we committed in this for the long term? Where is the purpose of this relationship? What are we doing? And any time communication breaks down, all the activities that you end up doing, activities that you think would save the relationship, they end up becoming burdens on your back and the relationship burns out. And then you forget why you were even in the relationship in the first place. And same with churches. You see, friends, our faith in God, our membership in a church, our coming and fellowshiping with one another is fueled by doctrine. It's fueled by doctrine. What's doctrine? It's those conversations that you have with your loved one. Lord, what am I here for? How do I know, Lord, that you love me? What evidence do I have that these eyewitness accounts are true? How do I know, Lord God, that, that, that this commitment that I have for you is, is going to point me to a real hope that I will be with you until forever? The church needs to provide these questions with answers. Doesn't mean that we have all the answers. Doesn't mean we could do this perfectly. But friends, when you have doubters in your life, when you have doubts in your life, I hope we would become a church that become a safe place for these doubters that like these disciples now with this new peace that they have. They could simply listen and not be anxious, not shunning the doubting Thomases in their lives and simply be there for them until some kind of peace enters into his life. So faith has doubts. Faith is a normal part of faith, sorry. It's, it's, it's doubts and real doubts, they are. But second thing we need to note about faith is that faith requires and needs and has a wise counselor. Look at what happens here in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, 
an almost similar scenario from last week. Jesus came inexplicably once again and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And just as Jesus didn't condemn the disciples last week when they were fearful of death and the Jews, neither does Jesus condemn Thomas. First things he says when, when, when he comes to their midst is, again, peace be with you. Thomas the doubter, peace be with you. And then he specifically addresses Thomas in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And in verse 29, skipping verse 28 for now, Jesus said to them, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Notice a few things about what Jesus, the wise counselor does here, right? Before Thomas even says anything, Remember, when Thomas vented the disciples eight days before this, before Thomas even says anything, Jesus knows what Thomas's doubts were. Jesus enters into the scene, addresses Thomas directly, pierces into his doubts, pierces into his heart, simply looks upon Thomas and says, I know exactly what you've been wrestling with. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Put your fingers there if you need to. So what does that say about a wise counselor, right? A wise counselor knows the individuality of the specific person. A wise counselor can look at the specific individual and say and see that this person requires a very specific remedy. He doesn't treat everybody the same way. And you see this pattern already after his resurrection, right? Mary, two weeks ago, what do we see? Mary, a grieving woman, looking for her savior, guilt impinging upon her. Jesus gently comes to her individually without anyone else there in privacy, in the garden, calls her out by name Mary, and Mary clings to him. That's beautiful. So Mary, a grieving woman, Jesus comes to her and calls her by name, knows exactly what she needs. And then to the other disciples, when they're fearful of death, when they're fearful of the persecutors around them, Jesus comes in behind locked doors and to all of them collectively tells them, I'm going to be with you. The Holy Spirit is coming. Don't worry. Stay together. I'm with you. Grieving woman gets called by name. Ten disciples in fear gets comforted by the Holy Spirit with Jesus. And now Thomas the doubter, what does he get from Jesus? A firm, firm challenge, right? Thomas, you're doubting? All right, bring on your doubts. Investigate the evidence for yourself. Here's the basis for the eyewitness accounts. Look at me. You see, that's a paradigm of good and necessary counseling, isn't it? Counseling is difficult because every person that we counsel, every person that you're counseling, is a different person. One advice to one person could not work for the other person, right? Or one advice to one specific individual might completely work for that person, but if that same advice is given to another person with a completely different history, different background entirely, could destroy that person's lives. And oftentimes, if we don't understand this, we start to treat everybody the same way, as if every Christian has the same history, has the same inclinations, the same personality, and constantly get frustrated at that, right? I remember one time, I gave this one person this book, you know, Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. I was like, that person helped my friend, helped me a lot, and it helped this other guy too, so I'm going to give this person this book. Read this. 
And they come back to me, and they're like, ah, this doesn't do anything for me. This is boring. And I'm so tempted to say, what's wrong with you, man? This is a fantastic book. It helped these three people. Why doesn't it help you? See, if, if we don't understand this, right, we're, we're going to be really impatient with all those who we're listening to. We don't see that people are individuals. God uses different ways with different means. There's one message, peace be with you. But Jesus communicates that same message differently to Mary, to disciples, and to Thomas. Peace be with you. So it's not like there's three different messages. It's not one thing works for one person, doesn't work for anyone else, so you've got to change the message every time. That's bad ministry advice. Rather, it's one message, but a contextually sensitive way of, of ministering that message to different people. So counseling's difficult. But not only that, what, do we, what else do we learn? Not only do, does Jesus know Thomas individually and his needs individually, but notice here, he's an amazing counselor because Jesus simultaneously affirms Thomas but rebukes him. He affirms him, but rebukes him. How does he affirm him? We're verse 27. Jesus gives him exactly what Thomas wants. Put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand. Place it on my side. Isn't this what you wanted, Thomas? I'm affirming you. There's, there's legitimacy in what you're asking for. If you want evidence, come look for it. Come see me. But it's almost like Jesus is doing this double talk here because in verse 29 it says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He firmly rebukes Thomas at the same time, right? He's telling Thomas, you see, you're asking for evidence and I'm giving it to you, but don't you see that you can actually believe me without seeing for yourself? You can believe simply on the basis of eyewitness accounts? That's enough? That's enough. And we have the same eyewitnesses that Thomas had. We have John's testimony right here. We have Peter's testimonies, we have Mark's testimonies, we have Luke's testimonies. We have the whole book of Acts that tells us what happened to the apostles afterwards. We have Paul's too, an enemy that became a convert, converted Christian, right? So we have all these kinds of testimonies and accounts, and well, that's enough for us. That's what Jesus is saying here, so he affirms them and rebukes them. And by the way, right, this is just a side note, most of what we take for granted in our lives, we did not witness. How many historical events have you known and believed to be true, but you weren't there for it? 99% of everything you know, right? How do you know that, you know, Plato was a disciple of Socrates? Were you there? Everybody takes that for granted. How do you know that Confucius existed? Were you there? How do you know that Napoleon was at one point a leader of the French army? Were you there? No, you, you believe eyewitness accounts. You believe textbooks. You believe professors. You believe teachers. You believe your parents, right? How do you know that you were born on that date? One time your dad told you, and you don't tell him, unless I was there to look at my own body as I was coming out of the womb. You, you don't do that, right? Normal people <laughs> believe on eyewitness accounts. Testimony is a real and valid basis for reasoning and faith. So, but Jesus affirms him and rebukes him at the same time. You see that? And that's crucial as well for, for counseling. For, for those who, have, who are, have doubts, right? When you're counseling somebody, or the secular people, what's, what's counseling for secular culture? Just affirm. Affirm, 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 right? You have issues 
with, with your parents, you have issues with relationships, tell us more, be authentic, do whatever you have to do. Go, like eat, pray, love, travel to Bali, find a romantic partner again. Go, live it up. If that's what you feel, be authentic. Do whatever you want. Feel affirmed. If that's what you feel, who's, who are we to tell you what's wrong and right? Just follow your heart. Affirm, 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 indulge, indulge, indulge. But a church legalistic culture goes the other side. We just rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. Someone vents to you, right? I've got issues with my marriage. <laughs> I've got issues. This is what's happening. You just say, well, haven't you read the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> well, what about the parable of forgiveness, Matthew 18? You know, you got to forgive or else you're not really a How do you know you're a Christian? Before they even stop weeping, you got a, a little theological lecture already given to them, right? And you're feeling good for yourself. One professor told me those kind of sessions are burping sessions. You burp, you feel better. The other person is disgusted. So <laughs> right, that's terrible counseling. Terrible counseling, right? You come away from those moments and you're like, oh, wow, I really shared the gospel with that person. No, you didn't. <laughs> Not like that, you didn't. But Jesus profoundly comes to their side, comes to Thomas' side. He listens and says, look, here's what's right. Here's what's good. There's something real about your doubt. I get that. Come to me. Come look for yourself. I see that. But Thomas, didn't you see? You didn't need this. You could have believed without this. And you knew that, Thomas. You knew that in your heart. Don't you see that? So a good counselor knows the individuality of the person, listens well, affirms but rebukes at the same time, affirms what they can by listening, but rebuking, rebuking where there's sinful parts of it as well, right? Third, Ben, third point. Faith is without conditions. Let's take a look at Thomas's response here when Jesus shows up and gives him precisely what he wants in verse 27. So Jesus says, put your finger here, see my hands, put your hand there, place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus gives him exactly what he wants. But notice something in verse 28. I don't think we notice this often enough. Thomas says in verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, simply proclaims in worship. Someone says if Jesus shows up and Thomas is taken aback, he gasps at the sight and he simply confesses, my Lord, my God, which is the highest kind of worship that any, any first century Jew, right? A Jew would never do this to a human being, but yet here he is saying, you are a God. You are my God. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't say to him, oh no, you're wrong, I'm just a prophet. I have come, yes, yes, but God is one and you know, he's good and all that, but he's, you know. No, Jesus just receives it. And not only that, friends, do you notice in verse 28, it's not recorded whether or not Thomas actually placed his finger or his hands on Jesus' hands inside. Did you notice that? Jesus shows up and Thomas simply confesses. It's almost as if, here's what you wanted, Thomas. Come and get it. And Thomas looks at it. Doesn't, he doesn't get it. He doesn't take it, in other words. He doesn't take what he first demanded in the first place. So... Thomas just confesses and doesn't take what he demanded there, right? Thomas is realizing now, I had the audacity to put conditions on my God. Remember what Thomas said to the disciples, right? I won't believe unless, and that's a condition. 
Um, I will only have faith only if, if and only if, I see. And it's almost as if Thomas sees the audacity of his demands. Who would demand something from a true God? Who would demand that? Thomas sees the audacity of his demands, is taken aback by himself, not just by the appearance of Jesus, and says, how dare I even put conditions on my allegiance to Christ? How dare I do that? Right? How many of us have come here and have said that over and over again to ourselves as we go back in bed, as we think about things of religion, things about Christianity, things about the Bible, things about Christ, and we say to ourselves, right, I'll only obey if I get to keep my lifestyle. And God shows me that I can keep this lifestyle and have him at the same time. I'll only obey if God gives me a revelatory sign that he shows up here in a dream. I'll only obey if I know that I will always be prosperous and have healing every time I demand for it. What conditions have you brought upon the Lord here today? And do you realize the genius of Jesus' counseling to someone who has placed conditions upon him is to give them what they wanted to show them the audacity of their claims. Sometimes God gives us precisely what we want to show us that we never needed it in the first place. And this happens in every tantrum, right? I remember I was a, I was a child uh, back in you know, the, um, the, the new year millennium. I, I, don't, I have, don't have many memories of my childhood, but I remember this distinctly. I was a little kid and um, I remember people were afraid of the Y2K, and I still lived in Singapore, right? I remember this moment very specifically and vividly. Just had dinner with my family when I still lived in Singapore back then, and I was going back home. We are walking home together, because you can do that in Singapore. We were walking home together, and um, uh, it was great dinner and stuff. There was a parade happening and, and, and all that, and I remember as a kid, I was obsessed with a video game called Final Fantasy. All right, so that shows you that I was a nerdy little chubby kid. But uh, I, I, I was obsessed with this game. So I had dinner, and I remember, I think it was like Final Fantasy IX was coming out or something like that. And I remember I was fixated on this video game, and I told my dad, I was like, I need this game. I need this game. I threw a little tantrum, like a little fit right there. And I was like, I need this game. What's wrong? Don't you see that everything is, this game is fantastic. It's great, you know? And I remember I, 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 I placed a condition. I'm not going home unless we get this game. <laughs> like what was I gonna do, rent a place when I was like a little kid, right? I'm not going home unless I get this game. And I remember my dad gently just, just whispered in my ear, do you really think my care for you is contingent upon me giving you this little game? I fed you, catch you alive. Do you really think that? Of course, the kid that I was, yes, right? <laughs> yes. And, and I remember I went home and I was, you know, bitter. Of course I went home. Where was I going to go? Um, <laughs> I remember a few, uh, like a few months later, I woke up and before school, there was the video game right there. And, and you know, I realized that he got, he got it from me a few months later. And I remember just feeling utter shame, right? Utter shame. And thinking about it now, I'm using this in a sermon, right? I'm thinking to myself now, right? How dare I thought the, the, the unjustified character of any tantrum, especially from a child to a parent that says, 
you don't love me unless you give me a particular object. The audacity of that. The audacity of that for us to do that. The unjustified character of that. And sometimes we only realize the audacity of it after our tantrum has settled and then it, it's given to us. And we're like, oh my goodness, I didn't need this. You've loved me all along. Of course it never depended on this in the first place. Has God ever done that for you? Has he ever done that for us? Of course he has. Haven't you ever said that and you could recall moments in your life, whether it, be, it might be a bad breakup. God, I'll only, I'll only be with you if, if you make sure that this relationship is, it goes on forever. And then it doesn't. And then you look back now and you realize, my goodness, I really didn't need that to know that God loves me. He's given me Christ. Might be a job. You think to yourself, I'm not going to obey you unless you give me this job. And then you realize, looking back now, years later, in hindsight, I can't believe I had the audacity to demand that of my Lord. And Thomas realizes that, and almost as if he looks at his claims, he looks at the graciousness of Jesus Christ, and he sees him again, and then he says, how dare I even demand something of this Lord? I have to drop all my conditions. Friends, we have to drop our conditions. What is it that's keeping you from true faith in God? What is it that you think you need to have for God to prove that he loves you? Don't you see? You didn't need that in the first place. Simply look at the resurrection. Death and life. Everything's been done for you. Look upon him. And that comes to my last point. Faith is on a person. So faith has doubts, wrestle with them. Faith as a wise counselor, learn from Christ, see how he counsels us, and therefore we can counsel others. Faith is without conditions, drop whatever conditions you might be bringing up to God today. And faith is on a person. Look at verses 30 to 31, where, where John comes towards the end of his book, and he simply expounds everything that he wrote this all for. What is the purpose of the book of John? Why does he write all these things? Well, what's the purpose? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, excuse me, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's John saying here? Faith is on a particular person. The reason why John wrote the entire gospel, the reason why any of these New Testament authors wrote what they did, referring back to the Old Testament, showing how Jesus fulfills all these promises, is that they want us to believe and have faith in a specific person. And that person, friends, ain't you. That person is not you. That person isn't your pastors, your elders. That person isn't your parents. That person isn't who you are in the future, whatever it might be. That person is none other than the person and work of Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you may have life in his name. Christianity, first and foremost, is the declaration, the pronouncement, the announcement of the good news that Jesus Christ has come into a dark, sin-soaked world to doubters like you and me and Thomas, and has said to us, peace be with you. 
I have died in your place. Friends, the gospel is not primarily good advice, it's good news. The, per- the person of Jesus Christ has done everything that you have ever wanted to do. But you know you couldn't. The person of Christ has, has, has died in your behalf. The person of Christ has resurrected, showing that he has overcome death. That your guilt has been atoned for. That you can be made clean. And he is the proof, above all proof, that God in Christ loves you. And what's another thing that's profound about this? is that, friends, look at John's strategy, if you could call it that way, of how he wants people to believe in Christ. If you want to think up of a strategy of how people could become Christians, how people might follow Jesus, what would you do? You might think to yourself, I got to be crafty in my business. Got to make sure that I, that I test, you know, I, I, I work well. That might be good and helpful. I got to be sure that, that I that I live a sanctified life, yes, that it's gotta be helpful. But first and foremost, what does John do? He simply records facts and deeds about who Jesus is. He doesn't shy away from the hard teachings, doesn't water them down, doesn't hide the shame that Jesus might have gotten from his persecutors. He simply records things and words that Jesus said and did and presents them to you. Here's proof. Here's who he is. Friends, the church doesn't need a glitzy and glamorous sanctuary, as good as our construction might be. The church doesn't need people who look like they're put together. The church doesn't need a glorious-looking band with beautiful sound systems and a smoke machine. The church doesn't need a, a fancy way of reaching people that is devised by men, whether it be by, through social media or how crafty we are at work or how we get people to invite them into, into Bible studies. The church primarily is what? As we saw last week, the forgiveness of sins and the proclamation of who Jesus is. It's a simple, simple, straightforward task. How do we get people to believe in Christ? Simply tell them about who he is. Stick with the word of God. Go verse by verse. Look at his person. Look at his work. Look at what he's done for you. Your sins atone. Your life given freely. That's love. That's who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, it's an incredible thing to behold that you've given us your one and only son. That through our shame and doubts, our fear, our grieving, Lord God, you attend to us individually, you counsel us wisely, and you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. You've given us your person. So Father, help us rest in this love and this promise, this gospel, this good news. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.